Praise God. Let's listen to his voice through the scripture this morning. Um, <clears throat> sharing a meal, I think, is one of, one of the most transcultural things that, that you can do. And what I mean by that is that uh, it doesn't matter your, your background um, and the country of origin or what have you, uh, sharing a meal is, is almost a universal human commitment. It's a value that we all enjoy and that opens us up to one another. And, and there's something, isn't it, that's communicated in sharing a meal uh, that the, the trans, uh, transcends the boundaries of language and even culture. Okay, fine, the type of food you might be eating could vary between cultures, but the fact of sitting down and opening your home and sharing that food with one another um, is something that is very transcultural. That's why um, at Alpha, we always start every session with, with, with food, and for that reason, because it just says something that words alone cannot say. And, um, and, and so I think there is power in, in the act of eating food, isn't there? Um, we can understand the gospel, the good news of the Christian faith, um, in, in some sense, around this idea of, of food. Uh, Jesus in the gospel um, effectively is inviting us to come and feast. You know, he's preparing a feast for us, and he's inviting us to come and join him in that feast and to come and, and party, effectively, with Jesus. Um, he's the host of, of this great banquet, and he calls us to come <clears throat> and eat. But more, more than just simply being a host and eating with Jesus, as cool as that will be, um, there's something more. And we'll see that in a few moments. You know, he, he says, take, eat. This is my body. This is my blood. Come and drink. You know, uh, sometimes Jesus gets called the bread of life. He himself is not just the host of the meal. He's the one that we come to and, and eat. Um, he nourishes us. You know, he feeds us in ways that uh, uh, words alone uh, cannot. That's what he does. And when we eat, we celebrate, we thank him. So what we see in this text and what we'll see over the next few moments are three relationships that we can have to spiritual food. All right, three relationships we can have to spiritual food. And I'm talking about the food that Jesus has come to give. This is my body. This is my blood. What are our three relationships? Well, I'll give you them up top. The first relationship we can have to spiritual food is abuse. We can abuse it. The second thing, goodness me, the second thing, uh, the second relationship we can have is avoidance. We can avoid it. And the third relationship we can have is delight. We can delight in it. Abuse, avoid, or delight. First of all, then, how do we uh, relate to spiritual food in a way that we, we abuse it? We abuse, <coughs> pardon me, we abuse the gift of the food. So um, let's look down at verses 12 through 16. And in those verses, we see Jesus giving um, uh, directions for Passover preparations. The Passover, if you're unfamiliar with, with the term, was an annual meal that the Jews um, had. It was probably the highlights, the high point, rather like Christmas, I suppose, for us. The families would gather. There would be a special set meal, and um, you know, there would be uh, festivities surrounding all of that. And the idea was that the central part of the meal was the slaughter of the Passover lamb. Right? A, a, a lamb would have been reared during that year, um, and it would have been purchased and then taken to the temple. It's the only place you can slaughter the lamb. Uh, it's blood spilt. And then that lamb taken back and then prepared and eaten and roasted. And there's all these other bits and pieces that would have come along with that. But the point of this is, uh, and Passover itself, was that God's people, the Jews, were to get together every year and rehearse the story of salvation. 
And I rehearse the story about when God took them um, as an enslaved group of people in Egypt and how he freed them, how he, how he delivered them from slavery in Egypt and, and brought them into the promised land, you know, brought them into the place of blessing uh, where they could worship him, where they could love him and know him and enjoy him. And so that was so important that, that, that God, uh, through Moses, started this yearly uh, observance. And, uh, you know, that's kind of a pattern, really, about how God works in general. That's why it's so important. You know, he releases from slavery and he brings people into freedom so they can worship him. And so what we have here in this text is Jesus uh, gathering his team together and um, putting on the Passover celebration. And he gave them directions, you know, go into the town, find the guy carrying the jar of water, you know, say to him this, this is what will happen, go to the upper room. It's hard to say from the text whether this is a miraculous thing that Jesus had done or whether Jesus or someone else had pre, you know, prepared this and Jesus was just simply giving uh, advice or directions. Same sort of thing about the donkey. Remember before the triumphal entry, uh, back in Mark 11, again, Jesus gave directions to the two disciples. We're not sure if it's miraculous or not. But either way, it doesn't, doesn't really matter. What the thing is, is really important here is that Jesus was fully aware about what was going to happen. He was fully in charge of the situation. Um, he was leading his team forward. I just think that's amazing, given what he was about to endure. It's likely um, in this meal there was more than just the 12 people um, present. Um, quite often when you see pictures or you know, paintings of the Last Supper, you see Jesus and, and the 12 apostles, the 12 disciples. Most likely there was a lot more people. That's why I think uh, they wanted, uh, Jesus wanted this large upper room um, in verse uh, 15. Um, and you, you, you know, usually for Passover, much like for Christmas, it's not just the lads hanging out. It's, 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 it's family, it's kids. Um, and all that. So most likely there's more than just the 12 there. Um, but I'm not, that's not a hill I'm willing to die on, but that's what I think. Anyway, um, <clears throat> during the festivities, it was all going. Uh, the meal was being shared, you know, just that nice buzz, people enjoying time together. Um, but during the festivities, it says in verse 18, uh, during the meal itself, Jesus, um, says, reclining at table, said, I say to you, truly, you lot listening, he said, one of you will betray me. One who is eating with me. Just scandalous, isn't it? The thought that in the middle of the high point of festivities, joy together, sharing food, one of you is going to betray me. We've just seen, haven't we? And we've been thinking how, how food is a sign of acceptance. You know, it's a sign of a bond, isn't it? It's a sign of unity and love that you share with the person, whether they are familiar to you or a stranger you bring into your home. It communicates things, and yet he says, one of you is going to betray me. Now, readers of Mark's gospel know already who that is. It's Judas. We saw that last week in verses 10 and 11. But for those gathered at the Passover meal, except Judas himself, none of them would have known. And we don't know how many people were there at that party. But Jesus is saying, someone here present now is going to betray me. Someone is enjoying this feast and yet for them, it is not satisfying. You know, someone is eating with us just now, and yet for them, they're craving for something more. What is happening here is not enough for them. They're hungering after something else. This is what Jesus is saying as they are tucking in. So the first relationship to spiritual, uh, spiritual food is abuse. Because what we have here is, is Judas, and we know it's Judas, he is using Jesus for his own purposes. Um, he, he, he's using Jesus to get what he wants. And this is 
totally the wrong way to look at Jesus. Uh, based on everything we have seen so far in the Gospel of Mark alone, we know that that is so messed up. That is so far away from the message that Jesus has come to preach and to show and to lead his people. And yet you have Judas who is willfully, and it is willful, willfully misunderstood the whole thing. Right? He's misunderstood all about Jesus, his teaching about the kingdom, he's misrepresented all of his um, miracles, the gospel, all that stuff. Judas has chosen to willfully misunderstand that because he is hungry for something other than Jesus. He's hungry for power, he's hungry for money, he's motivated by greed. And we see this all through church history, so sad. I grieve when I think. And I'm not just talking about contemporary examples, although there are loads of them. But throughout church history, individuals within the church have brought shame and dirt onto the name of Jesus because they have abused the spiritual food that Jesus is here to give us. They've been using religion or Jesus or whatever it is to get what they want. They don't want Jesus, they want something else, but they use him to obtain that. That's abuse. Right? They want sexual gratification, so they use the church to provide that for them. They want power trips, so they use the church to provide that for them. They want financial gain, and so they will see the church as a money-making device. It happens all through history. It's happening right now. It doesn't take much to find out online, etc. But do you notice something very, very surprising in here? Yes, it's surprising that someone within that 12 is going to betray Jesus, but look at the question in verse 19. They began, it says, to be very sorrowful and to say to him one after another, is it I? What is that? Is it I? One after another, they come to Jesus and say, is it me? We know, the readers of Mark, we know that it's Judas, but they didn't know that. So why would someone come and ask a question of Jesus, is it I? Bonkers. I think it shows us that those who asked that question weren't sure whether it was them or not. Whether they would be capable of actually doing this thing, there is an element of doubt in their minds. Is it me? Betray let's, let's, betrayal, let's be clear. Betrayal is cold. It is calculated. Okay? It's premeditated. Someone who betrays someone else puts thought into it. They put resources into doing it. Okay? And most often, the reason why betrayal is so painful, so deeply traumatic to the one being betrayed, is because betrayal breaks a deep relational bond that has been there for months, if not years. And someone has been using that and scheming with that and, and making plans... And then the betrayal happens. It is cold. It is stone cold. And so that question, is it I? Am I capable of doing this? They had to ask Jesus, is it me? Do I have it in me? It seems like there was at least a handful of people in that building at that time that weren't sure if it was them or not. What does that say about our hearts? Is it me? I think, I think it's a warning, isn't it? It's a warning for all of us. Is it possible? 
Is it possible that you've been using religion to get what you want? You get what works for you. I'm not talking about salvation because when we come to faith in Jesus, we're effectively saying we need you, Jesus, because we cannot do anything to save ourselves. We are lost in our sin unless you come in and show us your love and your grace and we receive that with the empty hands of faith. So, so salvation or whatever word you want to... You know, receiving the gospel, whatever, it's because you need it. I'm not talking about that, though, when I'm talking about betrayal. Here, the warning is against using Jesus out of my own and total self-interest. I'm using him for myself. I have no sense of emptiness, no sense of my need for Jesus, no drive towards him to come and receive his grace, none of that. I see Jesus as a way to achieve my own purposes, my gains on my terms. I think this is especially relevant for those in leadership within the church, whether formal leadership that is recognized, you know, leadership, or informal leadership, particularly in leadership, um, comes with the territory. You know, you, you must enjoy a certain amount of, of support, otherwise you're not a leader. You know, people will, will back you, they'll follow you. And that's a good thing, that's a, that's a good thing. Leadership is a good thing. But the more leadership you have, I think, the more susceptible you are to seeing Jesus, seeing the church as your, your way out, as your means to getting something greater. So our first relationship to spiritual food is abusing it. But there's another, there's another way that we can relate to the spiritual food that Jesus offers us here. And, and the second one is, is avoiding it. It's kind of like the other end of the scale. It's avoiding that spiritual food. Uh, you know, I suppose we could say someone's been overindulging, taking too much. But when, when it comes to avoidance, it's the other way around. Uh, people who avoid the spiritual food of Jesus are undernourished. You know, they, they avoid it. They hide away from it. Where do we get that from? In verses 26 through 31. Um, the end of this meal that Jesus has been celebrating with his friends, um, they sung a hymn, it says, most likely uh, Psalm 115 to 118, the Hallel Psalms, would have been part of the Passover liturgy. You would have sung these hymns together. And off they went, it says, to the Mount of Olives. And it says there that Jesus then shares another um, prediction of what, about, what is about to go down. And, and he uses a quote from Zechariah 13. And uh, he says this, again, uh, you know, we've just had this wonderful celebration, this Passover meal, and he says to his friends and those with him, you will all fall away. Quoting Zechariah, then he says, they will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. This is what's about to happen, says Jesus. It's going to go down. But he says in verse 28, after I'm raised up, uh, sorry, after that, I'll be raised up and I'll see you in Galilee. I just think this is absolutely remarkable, this whole thing that we're just looking at here. Because Jesus is about to face the most harrowing days, hours of his life and of any human life ever. He's about to face uh, injustice. He's about to face torture. He's about to face a cruel death on the cross. He's about to face the father turning his face from his son. And yet he stands there in this 
Mount of Olives with his friends with complete composure. Razor-sharp perception about what is about to happen. Jesus is governing the whole thing. He's organizing everything. He's saying, this is still under my control. This isn't happening to me. This is me organizing this. I think this is tremendous. Peter, of course, the first, most often to speak out, says, you know, full of, full of bravado, they all might fall away, but I'm not going to do that. Not me. I'm Peter, the rock. Rocks don't move. No doubt he was probably egged on with this revelation from Jesus during the meal, perhaps a somewhat unwanted intrusion. One of you is going to betray me. And so G- uh, Peter is eager to show, no, 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 not me. They might leave you. I won't. Jesus says, the cock will crow twice, and before which time you will have denied me three times. No, Jesus, I'll die with you if that's what it takes, he says. And they all said the same. An overcorrection, I think, an overcockiness. Because we see in verse 50 of the same chapter, I'll read it to you. They all left him and fled. Hours later, before pledging allegiance to death, they fled. Abuse of that spiritual food means seeing Jesus and religion, everything he gives, as a means to it, your end. Avoidance is the other end of the spectrum. It's seeing that spiritual food, seeing Jesus and everything he stands for, and seeing and, and suspecting that that will bring you harm. Or, or it's bad for you if you consume it, or if you get too close, it will do you in. And so you will abandon it, you'll flee, you'll hide. You'll avoid it. Uh, and, and as the, the narrative rolls on here, we've seen very soon, in a matter of hours, if, if, if even quicker, a mob appears in that garden as they arrive in called Gethsemane, uh, armed to the teeth, ready for violence, wanting to arrest Jesus and take him to some sort of uh, mock trial they have prepared for him. And of course, there's always a risk that these things can turn really violent, really bloody, really messy. And so the disciples, when they saw all this happening, and we'll see this in a few weeks, you know, thought, well, flip, we're going to get caught up in some serious trouble here. We've come totally unprepared. Like, who's got the sword? Oh, yeah, one of us has got a sword, but we've got nothing else except our fists and our, you know, fight or flight, lads. And in that moment, when the trouble came, they thought it was better to avoid Jesus than stick with him. We'll see that in a few weeks. Because it's easy, isn't it? as disciples of Jesus, to say, yay, Jesus, saviour of the world, bread of life when things are going great and the sun is shining. But what about when it's dark and the pressure comes on and the mob turns out? Then we're more likely to avoid, are we not? If we stay, they would have thought to themselves, there's a good chance that we'll get rounded up and taken in too and then we'll all end up in trouble. They'll think I'm the troublemaker. They'll look at me and think I'm the revolutionary. I better go. I better slip into the shadows. I better deny I know anything about Jesus because you know what will happen to me if I say yes? I'll say I never knew him. I'll just blend in. They'll never know. That's avoidance. Judas and those who abuse spiritual food hungered for power or money. The disciples here who avoided spiritual food, they hungered for acceptance, we could say. 
They wanted to be thought well of by the world. And so they conveniently slipped into the shadows and denied they ever knew Jesus. And I think there are many ways that we today can do this as well. It's not premeditated always like betrayal. Betrayal takes time. It takes effort. It takes, you know, cunning. This is often not premeditated. It's a reactionary thing. And, we, and yet we, we drop the ball. I, I, when I was preparing this, I was re- always reminded of a, a time when I was in school. I was in secondary school, probably second or third year. And I, I, I can't remember the context. I wish I could. But I just remember the, the scenario. I was outside the, the changing rooms, either before or after um, PE or something one afternoon. And I don't know why or how it led up to this, but I ended up being surrounded up against the wall somehow or other and surrounded by a group of probably, it felt like 300 uh, guys, but actually it's probably about three or four of them, you know, all from my class. And I, again, I, I have no idea why or what, what led up to this, but suddenly I was surrounded and the ringleader uh, dude um, said, said to me, are you a Christian? Do you, do you go to church? And I specifically remember this next one. Do you sing hymns? <laughs> and... Uh, I was like, of course, you know, when you're, when you're a 14-year-old boy or 13, whatever I was, I denied it all, you know. I could have said, no, 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 you know, of course I believe in Jesus. And if you ask him into your heart today, then you too can be a follower just like me. That's what I should have said. Uh, but no, I, I, um, I denied it. I denied it all. I said, no, I don't go to church. I don't sing. What's a hymn? I have no idea what a hymn is. Um, I've never heard that word. And that was it. The trial was over. It just seemed to dissipate very quickly. I was left on my own or whatever, and then just got on with class or whatever. I, I, nothing came of it. But instantly, even as a 13 or 14-year-old, I, I, felt, I felt guilt. I just felt the weight of guilt that I've just denied Jesus. And I, I would have counted myself as a believer then. Absolutely. I've just denied him. I, I felt instantly guilty. But that was a reaction. I just caved in. I was gutted. Um, since then, though, how, however, I, I've, I've received grace from Jesus. I've been restored. You know, he's forgiven me. And he'll, he'll forgive you too. But I, I wonder if you have ever caught yourself behaving like that. Um, denying somehow or other, shifting around, slipping into the shadows when it's convenient for you. Maybe certain social groups you're a part of where it's just not cool to be a Christian. It's never cool anyway. Um, Maybe a student at school or university, you just feel it's just so much easier just to keep your mouth shut and, and say nothing or sort of laugh and go along with the joke or whatever it happens to be. Maybe you feel pressure from certain colleagues at work, you know, who maybe give Christians a hard time or just give faith a hard time or life a hard in general. And so you, you, you slip into the shadows and conveniently forget what you believe in. Probably you've been wanting to curry favor or just appear a certain way. You wanted to win approval or affirmation or just be all right with people that you work with or live with or study with. But maybe you've done something like that. I want to point out, though, there is a, there is a difference between abuse, abusing spiritual food, and avoiding it. There is a difference between betrayal and denial of Jesus. And I think the difference can be defined as the likelihood of restoration once you've done one of those things. In the Mount of Olives, you know, in the Garden of Gethsemane, we, we read that they all fled. They all denied Jesus. Peter did it in style. He, he had three opportunities, <clears throat> and he said, uh, no, he didn't know Jesus three times. And yet, as Jesus predicted here in verse, what is it, uh, 28, he did meet them in Galilee. And he did receive them back, and he did restore them, and he did recommission them to go and be his apostles and his disciples and make 
disciples of every nation, and that's what they went off and did. So if you have denied Jesus, you, you, like them and I, can turn to Jesus Christ and receive forgiveness and receive his grace. But when it comes to abusing the spiritual food, that's a whole other ballgame. I'm not saying it's impossible for, for someone who betrays Jesus effectively. It's, I'm not saying it's impossible for them to be restored. There's always grace. But it's much less likely, practically. Why is that? Because betrayal, as I've said, is settled, it's calculated, it's premeditated. You don't just wake up one morning and decide to pull off a massive betrayal. You work on it, you plan it. And the thing that stops such people from being uh, reunited with Jesus and healed by him and having their hearts remade again by him, the thing that stops all that is because the individual doesn't want to be restored. You know, they, they don't want to come back to Jesus. They're so settled in their ways that even when they're caught, they persist in their protestations, in their denials, you know, in their, their failure to acknowledge what they have done is wrong because they're so settled in that and they've been working on that for months or even years. So I'm not saying it's impossible, I'm just saying it's really, really difficult. So we've thought about the ways that we can abuse spiritual food that Jesus gives. We've thought about the ways that we can avoid it by fleeing. But thirdly, you'll be glad to know there is a way that we can and must delight in what he gives us. It's beautiful. I don't know if you've picked it out, but actually, ironically, uh, what we're about to read, uh, verses 22 to 25, is the central part of another sandwich. And we, we've seen sandwiches as a literary device that Mark uses um, to sort of bring a focus on the central portion by, by putting bookends or bit, two bits of bread either side. And we saw that last week, he did that. And, 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 and he's done it just here as well. Uh, you've got the central bit, you've got the betrayal on one side, you've got the denial on the other side, and in the middle, you've got the meal. You've got what Jesus is all about in the middle. In, in the middle. Um, spiritual food. Delight in it, he says. Um, we, we've seen... Uh, the Passover looms large. You know, Mark points out for his sort of uh, non-Jewish you know, readers, it's the day when they sacrifice the Passover lamb. And then we see the Passover meal and what Jesus does in light of all that goes on. And it tells us in verse 22, Jesus says during the meal, took the bread, he blessed it, he broke it, he gave it. And he said to his disciples and all that were gathered, take, this is my body. And he proceeded moments later and he took the cup and he gave thanks to it again. And he offered it to them and he, they drank it, all of them, it says. And Jesus said, this is my blood of the covenant poured out for many. This is my body, he says. This is my blood. Take it. Those of you who um, have, have been you know, familiar um, with, with, with church and maybe familiar with these words, I want to point out this one thing here. Um, you know, quite often hear these words called the words of institution read out or recited in some way before we come to bread and wine in various church traditions. But do you note here, Jesus said, this is my blood, of the covenant 
poured out for many. He could have just said, this is my blood poured out for many, but he said, this is my blood of the covenant poured out for many. What does that mean? What, is, what, what covenant? It refers back to Exodus 24. And that actually, it was the section that, I didn't organize it like this, it's the Holy Spirit, but it's the section I preached on in our five-year anniversary a couple of weeks ago, back in February, four ways that God works. And you can go back and listen to that if you want. But it refers back, this, this blood of the covenant refers back to this moment when, when God has already freed his people from Egypt and they're, they're at the foot of Mount Sinai in the wilderness. And, and, and in that place, God met his people. He gave them his, his written word. They agreed to the terms and, and conditions about how he was going to relate to them and how they would relate back to him. And it was going to be wonderful. And it says then Moses and, and, and the rest of the team took the blood of bulls, sprinkled it on the makeshift altar, which was halfway up the mountain. And then he took the rest of the blood and he sprinkled it on the people of Israel. And Moses said, this is the blood of the covenant. This, this, this blood is, is something that, that seals you in. You know, it's like a, the rubber stamp, effectively, we would use today. It includes you. It guarantees the privileges and blessings of that covenant document upon you. Blood, blood, blood. That's how they did it in those days. For us, we would go to the solicitor and have it witnessed. For them, it was a spreading of blood. Got to the same point. This seals the deal. There's no coming back now. And so Jesus said, here's how this works. This is my body. This is my blood of the covenant. Take it. Eat it. Drink it. Do you notice that the meal isn't sprinkled on them? Jesus didn't stand up and throw the bread on them and, and throw the wine. Of course not. He said, take it into yourself. Chew it. This is my body. This is my blood. Feast on this. Feast on me. Taste it. Take it in your hands. Smell it. Chew it. Swallow it down. Allow it to nourish you. It will give you life. That's what's happening in this, in this meal. I keep pointing over here because that's where we're going to turn to later. The bread and the wine. Of course, Jesus intends all this metaphorically. It's not his actual body because he was physically stood there. So when he says, this is my body, he's saying this is, you know, this is a sign of my body. On the cross, we, we know that Jesus' body was broken. His blood was poured out. And so Jesus is connecting this meal with what happens on the cross, his active deep significance. In fact, we could say, at least according to Mark, the climactic act of the whole story is the death of the Son of God on the cross. And Jesus said this meal contains the power of what is happening on the cross. It's invested with great power and meaning. That's what it points us to. But here's the kicker. Based, that's all very interesting. But it's when you realize that it's for you that everything changes. Actually, Mark, in his um, narrative, does not include the actual words for you. It's implicit that this is for you. Luke, in the Gospel of Luke, um, does include these words. This is my body given for you. This is my blood poured out for you. But we get the point. It's for you. This stuff is for you. You benefit from the sacrifice of Jesus. You are included in God's covenant promises. This is for you. Delight it. Enjoy it. Come to him. Feed on him with faith. 
Feast on Jesus. He will satisfy your hunger for God. He will satisfy your needs, your hurts, your emptiness. He will fill you. Come to him. Have your fill. Your other cravings in life that will distract you from God, such as your desire for security or affirmation or beauty or fame or approval or whatever it is, all of that will be satisfied and met in Jesus when you come and feed on him. Because of the cross, you will be more safe and more secure than you will ever know. There is no enemy that can topple you. There is no thief that can steal and rob the life that Jesus gives you. Because of the cross, you have been declared righteous by God. Mine, says God when he looks at you. You are my son. You are my daughter. You are my beloved. There is more affirmation in the cross than you will ever need. You will ever get from social media or romantic relationship or wherever else you're looking for it. In the eyes of the only one whose opinion only ever matters, God's, he says, you're mine and I love you. Because of the cross, your name is known in heaven. You're not a small person in heaven. Because of the cross, you are covered in the beauty of Jesus. The ugliness that you think you have, either inside or outside, it is nothing in the eyes of God. God looks at you and he sees stupendous beauty because he sees Christ in you. This is why we delight when we come to the table. And this is why we do it every week, because we are nourishing, we are being fed by Jesus. This is my body, this is my blood. So in a few moments, after the sermon's finished, we will come and we will be nourished in Jesus. Before we do that, I want to uh, just lay out very, very quickly four essential components. This is just like bullet point stuff, okay, to f- finish on. Four essential components for the supper to be the supper. And they all begin with P for you note takers out there. Um, four essential components for the supper to be the supper. First P is the presence of Jesus. We see here in the text that Jesus is, is, is leading, he's hosting, he's distributing, he's giving out. It is the same today. When we come to the table, it's not just parked there on its own. Jesus is with us by his Spirit, right? He is still presiding at his table. We cannot see him with our eyes, but he's here with his Spirit. That's what makes this stuff here significant. This is my body. This is my blood. It it makes eating and drinking the bread and the wine electrifying because it is filled with power, because Jesus is present. It's wonderful. And if you want to learn more about what what I'm getting at here, you can go back. We did a little series before Christmas, When You Come Together. And there's one particular message I put together about the sacraments, of which bread and wine is one of them. And um, go, go listen, go, go, go learn a little more about sacraments. But Jesus is present. That's why it's exciting. That's why it's awesome. Second P, participation. Who participates? It's for disciples of Jesus. We can see that here. It's for his followers, sincere followers of Jesus, those who have faith in Jesus. The, the, the bread and the wine marks them out. It's the meal that sort of effectively shows who's in. Um, it sort of distinguishes them from, from you know, those who are not within, I suppose, in some ways. And here at Foundation Church, uh, we express that th- visibly and publicly through, through membership. And you might ask yourself, well, what's this got to do with church membership? You have a way of working it into every sermon. Um, hopefully that's not true. But, but membership for us is a way of identifying and affirming disciples of Jesus. Okay, we're not making disciples by doing that, but we're just saying we identify and we can affirm Um, what's clearly going on in your life. Yes, faith in Jesus is a personal thing you must decide and bear and receive yourself, absolutely. But faith is never isolated. It's our faith. It's the faith of the church, not just Foundation Church, but the the Holy Catholic Church. 
small c, the universal church. It's our faith. And for such an important key thing, I want someone else to make sure they can see what I can see, what I think I can see. Can you see that in me? Yes, great. You're a disciple. Brilliant. It's important. Um, every tradition has a way of identifying, I suppose. We could say Anglicans do it through confirmation. They did when I was a kid. Roman Catholics do it through First Communion. Presbyterians do it through becoming a communicant member. We all have a way of doing it. Baptists do it through church membership. There's a way of, of, uh, of identifying disciples. Participate. Presence, participation. Third thing, the third essential component, almost done, preaches the gospel. Um, I think that's obvious from what we've been saying. I, I hope it is. The central act of the self-giving, self-sacrificial work of Jesus on the cross is displayed every time we take the bread and the wine. And it ensures that we never, uh, it never leaves the church. It's always central. That's why we say we're a gospel-centered church, a foundation church. And part of that means that we celebrate the sacraments. You know, we receive them. They, they are signs of the gospel, point us to the gospel. They preach the gospel. And we do it every, every week. And we use bread and we use wine because Jesus used bread and he used wine. Uh, we're not going to use beer and pizza. Uh, we're not going to use Weetabix and milk. We're not going to use pancakes and juice. We're going to use bread and wine because it says it in the Bible. There we go. But it preaches the gospel. My body, my blood. And fourthly and finally, the promise. The essential component of supper. Yes, we look back, but there's a promise. Look down at verse 25 briefly. He says, truly I say to you, I will, this is Jesus, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine, that's the wine, unless that, uh, until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. There's this future element to what we do here. Amen. It's, not, it's the atonement, it's the cross, it's what Jesus does as a sacrificial lamb on our behalf. Amen, amen, amen. But it's beyond. It doesn't, it's, not, it's not a full stop, it's a comma uh, when, we come to the, when we come to the table. Uh, because there's more coming. And so when we eat and drink, we're thankful, we're, we're filled, we're, we're blessed, our faith is strengthened, and yet we're, our hope is built. Because we know the coming kingdom. We know Jesus is returning. We saw that a few weeks ago. And so as we come to the table in a few moments now, we will eat and drink with Jesus by faith. And he will remind us and he will refresh us and he will nourish us. And that points us to that time when one day we will celebrate the feast of all feasts. When he invites us to that great banquet. When he returns and he says, behold, I make all things new. Come to my feast. Come and enjoy me. Let's pray.